Welcome to OTXNT, where we discuss the biblical topics from the perspective of the Old Testament through the lens of Christ and the New Testament. I'm Dr. Andrew Marquez, and I'm here with Dr. Ben Pate. Today's discussion is a really exciting topic. It is about the age of accountability, and we're going to do our best to try to keep it on that, but it's connected to so many things that we will need the Lord's help as we go forward. So let's open with our prayer. Let's do it. We use the Lord's Prayer. Uh, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, our, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'm so excited about the topic. I almost forgot the Lord's Prayer, uh, but it came to me. <laughs> good. Good. So. Well, well, hey, look, um, this is one of those discussions that pops up in the church all the time. Um, it's one that, and I think one of the things I like about what we're doing here, Andrew, is one of the things that I, I like to explore is um, areas that we as maybe evangelicals or even just Baptists in general uh, just kind of accept, but either we accept it and we haven't given much thought to it, um, and we just kind of say, this is how it is. Uh, but I want to push us on that. And so that's one of these ones is age of accountability. Because I would say probably your general Southern Baptist would affirm some sort of age of accountability. Um, and uh, But when it comes to verses or why, we might just kind of say, well, it just makes sense, right? You know, and so I want us to deal with that. And I want to ask the question, do we see, um, do we see biblical reasons for if there truly is? Because the more we looked into it, especially when you start getting into the areas of systematics, because um, I know you and I are going to bring up certain theologians today, um, there become some hard and fast categories that, that even with evangelical circles would push back and say, um, I don't think we can say or affirm there's an age of accountability. So let's start it up, man. Let's talk about it and um, do this. Yeah, and um, I did want to just say uh, gotquestions.org has a really helpful article on this. And I think uh, just always trying to point people to good resources. So that's uh, in print and just kind of helps explain what we're looking at when we discuss age of accountability. What we're trying to say, is there an age where man becomes aware or uh, capable of placing their faith in Christ and therefore uh, receiving the gift of salvation. And Ooh. if someone has not crossed that threshold, uh, a baby perhaps or a young child uh, who dies, uh, are they going to go to heaven or hell? And so the age of accountability becomes significant because if God does not uh, apply the guilt of your sin to you or somehow prior to your ability to accept Christ will allow the grace of Christ to flow to you uh, through his sacrifice so that you get to go to heaven. Because we, we do struggle. Ultimately, how could God send a baby to hell, right? That, that just doesn't sit right. So I think most of the time when we're arguing this subject, we're arguing it backwards. Like God wouldn't do that. God is good and that's clearly bad. Therefore, the Bible must have an age of accountability in there somewhere. And yeah. I, I don't necessarily disagree with the conclusion, but it's the wrong way to do uh, biblical interpretation. 
I would agree. I would say that's, you're probably right. Because this I know about God, this just doesn't fit with me. Uh, right. And so therefore I reject and assume and just kind of maybe blindly assume. And I think that's where it's important to really say, okay, what does the Bible actually teach and, and what can we pick up? Because we may not be able to pro provide strong answers, but we, we can at least say we need to stand on something, right? Right. And, and the truth is, if, if the Bible does say that, that's great. And, and if the Bible doesn't say that, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have some sort of means of grace that we aren't aware of, but we need to be careful that we don't go further than scripture. So, uh, you know, if you do any Googling on this or any research, you're going to be brought to about three or four passages of the Bible that influence this question. Um, and I think the most significant one is the Old Testament. Do you, do you want to go there first? And Let's do it. All right. Sure. So, okay, look, so typically when you when you talk about age of accountability, um, what is what is brought up is uh, the story in First Samuel, uh, or I'm sorry, Second Samuel, um, and you get to chapter twelve um, when his baby dies, when when David's baby with Bathsheba passes. So here are the words. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, he, you know, there's this weird part where he spent all this time fasting and mourning and all of that. When he finds that the baby dies, he goes, he cleans himself up, worships, and then he eats. And the people are like, well, aren't you supposed to fast and do all of that later on? Why are you doing this this way? And then verse 21 says, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. And he answered, while the baby was alive... Uh, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he'll never return to me. So that phrase, I'll go to him, is one that is, is really kind of the, the main verse that people will use, that, that set of words, that's usually the ones that people use when they say, see, that's what David, David's talking about, that the baby's already with the Lord, and therefore, David will one day go to be with the baby. Um, so, uh, the, the problem with that is usually the, the, the next critique that is offered of that, right, is that um, David is not saying you know, that I'm going to go be with you in heaven. And, and really this, this Andrew, and this is one I think is another conversation that we, every time we talk, right. I'm going to put a <laughs> sticky note down again. I was, uh, but the, 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 this is another conversation of just as what is the view of, you know, how were old Testament saints saved, right? You know, because what does that look like? So some would say, well, see, look, you can't, you can't say that that's what he's talking about because they'll bring up that David is, is simply saying, I'm going to go to Sheol. I'm going to go to the place of the dead where you're at. We're all going to be dead. Now, granted, he's either saying one of two, well, one of three things here. Okay. Number one, he's saying, I'm going to go be in the Lord's presence with you. Right. Which is how this is commonly taken, especially as we talk about age of accountability. Uh, option two, he's saying, uh, I am going to go to the afterlife, the place of Sheol with you. 
Not saying because in you know you know in some and we'll talk about this unpack it later. But one view of where Old Testament saints went is they went to kind of a holding tank, so to speak, of Sheol. It's not heaven. It's not hell until Christ comes and preaches to them. So that's a whole other discussion, right? Yeah. Option three is simply more of a kind of an Ecclesiastes view, which is we're all going to the dirt. I'll meet you there, you know. Right. But I don't really think that's what he's saying. I think there's some sort of view of the resurrection in mind, at least the, the, the soul of where he's going. So the question is, what does he mean by that? And, uh, and, and so which is it? Um, and, and there's really, that's, there's a lot of division on this. Is Does he mean that we're going to see him or is he not? Um, and a lot of that then, Andrew, then just gets hit back over to your side because then we got to deal with that. Okay, well then, how are people? Uh, what are, what do we have to do? Don't we have to deal with the fact that you know what is our state when we die as a baby? What does the Bible say about babies? Do they die in sin because they haven't made sin actions? In this case, this baby was born eight days. You know, um, hasn't done anything, right? right. Probably right. ate, drank, cried, died. You know. So what do you do? What do you make of that? So that's kind of where it begins to go on the sin piece. And what does the Bible tell us about our condition? So let's throw it over to New Testament and see what you got. So, yeah. So now the question is, um, I, I remember the first time I was, uh, went to a Christian high school and uh, it was reformed uh, in its doctrine presentation. And it was the first time I had ever even heard the idea that uh, babies who die, some could go to hell. And I mean, I, I remember being like 16 and, and being just so angry. <laughs> uh, you know, how dare you accuse God of, uh, of such a, a, an evil? And, and that's, I, I still feel the same way, but I understand at least the, the, the rationale that gets you there. And that has to do with uh, the state in which we're born. And so we get to the question of original sin. So if, if uh, we're all born with original sin, and we can expand on that, uh, we probably will here in a second, but, uh, and we die, and we haven't had the opportunity to receive the gospel message, put our faith and trust into it, then uh, the default from what we know in the New Testament, how are you saved? By, by faith and grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you cannot do that and you die, then the logical uh, option is you go to hell. And yeah. so, uh, so we either have to have a plan B, which the Bible doesn't really clearly give us, which is that, you know, unless you're capable, God overrides this, uh, or, or we've gotten plan A wrong of some type. And so that, that's kind of where we go into. So, so are we ready to go to the original guilt question now? Um, yeah, I think, I think we need to go there because this is, and this is, I think, a, a, I know we don't want to spend our lot of time talking about original guilt and original sin um, sin nature, all of that, because that's not the topic of this right now, but it, it's, it's highly related to this. Right. And so for church people too, especially, we need to ask the question of how sinful am I really in the eyes of the Lord? Right. Uh, and so we, a lot of the time we think about merely the fact that I just participate in sin is what makes me sinful. And is that really the case or is there more to it? And so the question is, does, do, am I sinful before the Lord? because of my actions or have I inherited sin uh, in the actions of Adam? And that's where we get down to, is this inherited sin, this inherited guilt um, that, that let's, let's, let's go into it, man. Let's talk about it. All right. So the, 
the shedding of light on the question of how are we born would come from Romans 5. And beginning in the 12th verse, we have this comparison that's made between uh, in Adam, this is our state. In Christ, this is our state. And uh, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death resigned, or sorry, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who is to come. But the free gift, the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. And so it'll continue on, but uh, I'll just go straight to verse 18. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all, to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And so this is that comparison. And uh, the, the key verse in this for our question is, uh, if we are born in Adam and we inherit the sin of Adam, which I believe everybody pretty well agrees that we, we've, we are heirs to that sin in some sense, then we are all in a, in a fallen state at birth. And mm -hmm. if that's the case, then what, what is the mechanism to undo that fallen state? And, uh, you know, from a Baptist Protestant perspective, that the mechanism we're given in the Bible is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you can't do that, if you're an age of accountability, doesn't just apply to children. It also sometimes applies to those that are um, lacking capacity. Uh, yeah. So, um, handicapped, mentally handicapped, those that just are never going to uh, uh, achieve a certain level uh, of cognizance to, to choose between life and death as they're told to do in Joshua and throughout the Bible. So, so the real question is, what did we inherit in Adam? And yeah. uh, is, the, is there another mechanism, sorry, is there a mechanism in the Bible to save those who are unable to be saved otherwise? And uh, so, let, let's deal with this just perspective because we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to, you and I will not solve in this <laughs> discussion, um, you know, original sin. I mean, that's such a big, huge concept to deal with, but I think that you and I probably have some differing views about how that, how that plays out. I mean, I, I look at Romans 5 and I do believe that essentially we're saying all are found to be guilty in Adam in the same way, you know, that Hebrews makes the case, right. Um, that uh, it was a big deal when Abraham made a tie to Melchizedek and he says, it's, you know, that, that Levi uh, was in the, the loins of, you know, or Aaron was in the loins of Abraham uh, and that the, his actions correspond to why Melchizedek priesthood is greater than that kind of correlation that he brings. I think that's something similar being said. I think he's saying that in Adam, all of us are there. All of us are now guilty because of his work. 
Um, and, and that's so that's when I take things like this. And um, when you look at like Psalm 51, which is David's response, right, to what's after, he even in the same thing as he's talking, he knows his kid's dead, but yet he says in um, in Psalm 51.5, he says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born and I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Uh, he's not talking about the way that his mom conceived of him. I mean, he's the youngest of the brothers. It's not like they were, uh, it was, there's no adultery going on or anything like that. But we're saying, he's saying, I was sinful at birth. Um, and so to me, I think that's a tough concept to deal with, but I, I, I at least kind of, kind of land there, right? That, that everybody is found to be condemned because of the sins of Adam, and we inherit that guilt. But I know that you and I have some kind of nuanced differences there. So where do you land in terms of that? Yeah, so, and, and part of the reason that I land here is because I'm not, I'm not so reformed in my views, uh, which, you know, it's out of the bag. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm not far from the reformed, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm probably... I lean more in the Arminian persuasion on things, but that's, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself Arminian either. But uh, when we see verse 12, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, what we see in this verse, and this, this is really Romans 5.12a is the basis for original sin and uh, the companion to that inherited guilt, that because Adam sinned, we in Adam inherited that sin. Mm -hmm. And then the question is uh, the, the, the word guilt. So sometimes you'll see the word original sin. The original sin is that because of the ancestral sin of Adam, it has flown through uh, his race to us today. And we share in the condemnation of that sin. We are a fallen race. And I, I think everyone really East, West, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox agrees with that. The, the disagreement comes on, are we guilty of Adam's sin? So Adam's personal sin for which he is judged, is that passed through the line as well? Mm -hmm. And I would say no. I, I would say that uh, the reason that I'm guilty is because I sin on my own. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, and I, what I think Romans is saying is that you will sin on your own. In fact, you know, you're, you're probably never as selfish in your life as you are as an infant, you know, whether it's conscious, active rebellion or just selfish behavior, uh, eventually given time, every human being will sin, uh, will uh, fall into um, placing themselves over God and uh, sinning on their own. And, and death then comes to all because all sin. So the outworking is everybody's going to sin. Nobody's going to escape that. We're born with the ancestral sin of Adam on us, but is, is an infant guilty in that sense of Adam's sin. I, I would fall on the side that says, no, um, they're not, which uh, is more in line with more of the orthodox view of this, which, you know, they might get mad at me at some point if I misrepresent this. But the idea is that we do retain the consequences of Adam's sin, which is death. Mm -hmm. And so we're all going to die, but that if I don't have the guilt of Adam's sin and I have not uh, sin in that way. It's not that I'm sinless. I'm still tainted by sin. I'm, I'm, I'm part of a fallen race. I, I, I've, I've got all of that, but that Christ's uh, forgiveness is applied then uh, kind of in a different way. I mean, and, and, and that's not even a necessary correlation. So I should just stop there, but 
but because that guilt is not put on me in that way, there, there seems to be a sense of innocence for children that, that would be different. Uh, so and would you children. say, but would you say that this, would this, you're saying that this, with this passage, you'd say teach more in line of just a simple, like inherited sin nature. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and so death is the punishment for all and sin nature is passed on, not necessarily sin, you know, sin guilt, um, to every being is how you would kind of understand it. Right. But the weight of that inherited sin nature is so dominating that no one escapes that. No, nobody. Okay. Uh, and we, and we are in a separated capacity from God because of the inherited uh, original sin of Adam that, yeah. that our race has fallen. So, so when you really start breaking it down, the, the two views are not as far apart. I was about to say, uh, we're not that different no. on, on how we look at it. Um, but I do want to say, I do think, so let me ask you this, because I think this comes from our discussion on baptism, right? So right. You, you've looked more into that stuff than me, but so in that some of the push, though, is well, why is the push for we've got to baptize infants? Is that due to how we understand this area? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so when original sin really gets expanded and, and expounded by, you know, Augustine and, and what follows Augustine, uh, we, we end up with this concept that everybody is born going to hell. Uh, and, and so because of that, what we have to do is take care of original sin to, through the waters of regeneration, which this goes back into baptismal regeneration saving you, that let's dunk the infants as soon as we can, because that way we will wipe away the inherited guilt and sin found in Adam and allow the child to grow up, you know, free of that. Now they'll still I think the word is concupiscence. They, they have inclination to sin that's not erased through the baptismal waters and they still fall into their own sin. But those then are taken care of uh, in sacramental groups through confession and participating in the Eucharist. So, so that's their mechanism post uh, the salvation that comes through baptism. But okay. Limbo is essentially created as the, the nicest layer of hell where babies go and really good people that didn't have the gospel go. So they don't get to go to heaven to be with Jesus, but they get to go to kind of a um, like inherit the earth type place, which is not necessarily a place of persecution, but because they are lost, they're going to have a pleasant eternity that is not heaven. And so this course, disclaimer, we should put disclaimer at the bottom. This is once again, this is Catholic <laughs> theology, not ours. And whether no. they even hold to it anymore is a big question, Mark. Yeah, but this, yeah, this is not Baptist theology. But you can see it's all wrestling with the same thing. Like if, how could a good God send uh, a baby <laughs> to <laughs> hell, you know, for torment? It just, it, it does not sit right with really the, uh, I would say with the moral compass that's even in place in most humans. But so, since we're, we're biblical yeah. Christians, we can't just operate on that. You know, I feel this way about something doesn't give me grounds to believe it. So I guess, I guess where we have to go from here is, okay, we have to say, so what do we know, right? So what do we know? I, I think in one respect, you know, um, you know, where your view has it is you're going to be focused more on, okay, so there's some of that, like, if I'm just hearing you out correctly, right? If it's about sin nature, then my lack of action, correct? Uh, be prior to knowing, so an infant who dies at birth has never, never participated in sin, is therefore not guilty because they've not participated. Is that how you would look at that? Right. So they, they have not inherited Adam's particular sin. Okay. Uh, and, yeah. And, and the, 
the connection point, which I'm not sure I'm willing to make just, you know, for the world, but that, that what would follow then is that I don't necessarily need forgiveness for my own individual sins at this point, but I do need God to bridge the gap to me that I have being a son of a fallen race in Adam. And, and that's where I still need Christ's sacrifice to establish the connection to, uh, to the father, to, to reunite me. Um, but I don't have the need to confess, repent, and, and put my faith in Christ. And I'm un- incapable of that because I, I can't do that. And so um, it, it makes it easier to bridge the work of Christ to me, I think, in this view. So, and that's, I mean, eventually, I mean, not that this is where Wayne, Wayne Grudem doesn't come to your position, but Wayne yeah. says at the end of even his viewpoint, um, you know, this, he says these words, you know, that what we, what then we do say about infants who die before they're old enough to understand, uh, if they are saved, he says, it cannot be on their own merits or on the basis of their own righteousness or innocence, but it must be entirely on the basis of Christ's redemptive work and regeneration by the work of the Holy Spirit within them. And so he links that to even, even wherever you're at, there's no innocence. It has to be through the work of Christ that will cover and take care of that is what saves them, uh, which I like. I like that Wayne says that. I think I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, it, and again, I'm not, I'm not even connecting my view to the view of the, the, the child without an original guilt or inherited yeah. guilt. That, that, that they're purely innocent in God's eyes. It's just, it's an easier correlation. But nobody gets into heaven without being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that blood of Christ, uh, the, the fathers do have some discussion on this. And as they discuss it, they're, they're really torn. I, I, I've got a kind of a, a little quote that's it's worth reading here from uh, Cyril of Alexandria. And he says, it can be said that while we have not inherited the guilt of Adam's personal sin, because his sin is also of generic nature, and because the entire human race is possessed of an essential ontological unity, we, par- we participate in it by virtue of our participation in the human race. And I would say that this is your Hebrews quote of being in the, in the loins of our fathers. The imparting of original sin by means of natural heredity should be understood in terms of the unity of the entire human nature, of the homo usioitos, of all men who connected by nature constitute one mystic whole, Inasmuch as the human nature is indeed unique and unbreakable, the imparting of sin from the firstborn to the entire human race descended from him is rendered explicable. Explicitly as from the root, the sickness proceeded to the rest of the tree, Adam being the root who had suffered corruption. So again, you know, maybe I should shorten that up, but there's still this huge tightness in being from Adam and resulting from this sickly tree that I am part of a fallen uh, dying race, and I have the consequences of death, and that death meaning separation, you know, from God. So I still need God to pursue me. I'm not necessarily innocent, uh, yeah. but uh, so, so yeah, even if you don't accept the inherited personal guilt of s- the sin of Adam, it doesn't mean that you're innocent and un- unneeding of God's grace. So, so I think, I think there's still a few places, there's still some clues that can help us formulate what God might do um, or how God may look at them. So once again, we're in the areas of just, we're putting pieces together. I think one of the, one of the difficult places of, of systematic theology is um, your, your, your system, your boxes are going to have to fit just right. 
And I think where we're about to jump off to is one that um, is, I think there's a little more freedom in a biblical theology model to just say, I can affirm these things, but I also am going to deal with the fact that this is here, and I don't know how it would fit with the full model. I just, I'm, I'm looking at this as best as I can say, this is what I've come up with. And I think there's, that's okay. I think it's okay to be looking at the text and to say, here are some things that I notice, and they don't seem to fit. It doesn't fit perfectly in a reform model. It doesn't fit perfectly in a Arminian model here. Uh, so I think there's a couple of places to go. Um, so, I mean, obviously, let's go to the, the first set, I think, that would be brought up. The, the, after you get through, uh, David is saying, I'll go to him. And, and I would do, I would say that I think uh, David believes he's going to be reunited with his baby. Okay, I'd go there. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, like I said, you've got to start with that. This is where I think. So, so at some point, we know, we know that God has to do something on behalf of these babies, no matter what. Right. Or we're just trying to ask, what do we see about children? What do we notice with them? And so I think the next part is we, we kind of jump to the New Testament, right, about Jesus's view of children. Right. So I've got uh, Matthew uh, 19, 13 up. And this is that famous passage of the little children are being brought to Jesus to place his hands on them and to pray for them. And the disciples rebuke them saying, uh, you know, leave the master alone. And Jesus says, let the little children come unto me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know if that's where you were going, but that's... No, that's I mean, where I wanted to go. That's a description of the heart of God, right? So <clears throat> God is trying to welcome the children home and that whoever makes it into heaven is like those little, little ones. And so he doesn't say, hey, they are free from sin, they're pure, they, they have no need of redemption. What, what he says is, I want the kids to come to me. And so... Uh, I would say that, you know, if we had to then back away without clear text on this is how it works, we do know that God loves children more than you and I love children, and that he wants to see them come to him. So that, that would be uh, something to influence a decision on the age of accountability. I think, I think that's a great way to say it, is those two things you said. First off, that, that view, he loves children more than you and I do. I mean, because we love our children, right. to, to know that God loves my children more than I do, and wants to see them safe more than I do. Um, you know, uh, so that's important. But I think also just that, um, that, that idea that, um, you know, these are things that we can know, we can know about the heart of God uh, towards children and let that shade what we do know about this and what, how we're trying to put this view together. So I think that's good. Um, anything on the New Testament side that you else would you might say is anecdotal or would helpful to, to this discussion that you've got? So if we go to the household codes, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and we, we see that husbands do this, masters do this, slaves do this, and then it, it says children. Uh, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is good. Uh, this is fitting, and uh, fathers don't exasperate your children to anger, uh, but raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, this is very uh, unclear, uh, but what we do see is these are letters written to the church, and children are instructed directly as though they are participants of the church, which, uh, and so, you know, this is the Presbyterian view of why baptism of infants is okay, because they're already in the church. And um, without going back to that discussion, what we do see is that the apostles are assuming that children in the church, raised in the church, uh, should come to participate in the church. And so I think there is hope 
that if you have believing parents, that the expectation of the scripture is that those children could and should come up to know, uh, know Christ. And so uh, the fact that they're already mentioned in the church, maybe that is uh, an idea that um, prior to their ability to make decisions, God sees them as already part of his family. Yeah. That, that one's looser. Um, yeah, you know, but I think that's kind of the hope that a reform perspective offers. If you read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, I've got it open here on my computer, um, and that's what he does. I mean, I, and, and, I, and I, I, there's something to it I think is important. Uh, he definitely begins to talk about, right, um, and point out just this view uh, in the Bible that, um, that yeah, that collective units, families, right, uh, that you see people are you know, like he brings up Noah. It's Noah because of Noah, God will include in the 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 sons and the the wives of Noah as well. Uh, that there's some things that we see that God there's kind of patterns, so to speak, of um, of God saving the 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 individual who has placed his faith, and he's been gracious to save also. The, the children as well. Uh, and, and so, you know, he, you know, you'll see things like uh, he brings another one up in here with Rahab uh, and it's right. through her actions that mother and father and brothers and all the family that those people are going to be saved because of her actions. And so, uh, you know, the reform perspective, at least reform in the sense of I'm using Grudem's viewpoint um, is that we do see a, a God's gracious salvation of families, children. It's not always the case. Obviously, we know a lot. We know people who uh, have grown up in, in the church, who've abandoned it, walked away, uh, and it's devastating. We, we know that, that that doesn't always work. And even in the Bible, we see that. We see people who were, you know, individuals, I, I think, you know, I've always talked about maybe wanting to write an article or a book on the, the, the idiot children of godly men. You know, we see that because we, there's a pattern of yeah. some of that too, but, but there's a, there is a pattern that you could say, which is, you know, that people, uh, that God has been gracious. And so he might do that to those who are his own as well. And so that's, that's, I think, but I think that's like the extent of the, the hope for, for a view that for that, right? Is that because God has done that, he can, he can save children through the work of Christ um, and be gracious to my family as well. Well, I would want to just push a little bit on uh, back on us, because I think both of us hold that there is an age of accountability, that God does intervene in a way that we don't have clear understanding yeah. Uh, to, to apply the blood of Christ to those that don't know. But uh, this is the same argument than that those that push for an inclusivist or even universalist view of salvation will use for the ones that have never heard. Yeah. And uh, so because they've never heard, we put them in this age of accountability camp uh, and say, okay, well, God will use that same mechanism to apply the blood of Christ. And there's a difference there that these are people who have sinned that have the law written uh, in their nature that understand yeah. and, and have sinned and so so we got to be careful when that argument is extended that that we don't go that direction blindly because there is a significant difference we're talking about people who can never uh, have not or maybe never will be able to recognize their their fallen state where yeah. uh, 
That's I think not the case. Romans. I think Romans three is very clear. There's no such thing as a good person. So right. that that illustration we put about what about the good person on an island who's never heard about Jesus? That that doesn't exist. Right. Everybody has sinned against the Lord. There is a we've whether you've sinned against conscience or uh, there is a piece where everybody at some point you have willingly participated. So we are, I think it's good to, ref to go back to, we're talking about people who either mentally are completely unable to do anything uh, with in terms of decision-making uh, children who have never been able, who don't even know, you know, what sin is, that kind of a thing. They don't quite grasp it. So what do we do? Uh, how do you deal with that? So I think that's important as well. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, you don't want to go and just say, well, if he did it for that, he can do it for all, you know? Um, I think this is where it's, it's not nice and tidy either. Is right. I think it's very clear for those who have never heard, I'm, that's, the, that's what it is. It's, 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 it's judgment that's coming. And yet at the same time, I think it's perfectly legitimate to uphold that there is some sort of age of accountability for those who are unable unable to even process, you know, yeah. or, or think in terms of that. And yeah, so I, I think we agree, you know, one of the verses that popped in my head as we were talking was the Old Testament uh, prophets that say, you know, that the, no longer will the parent uh, sin and the, the child have sour grapes. You know what I'm talking about? Um, the, the, the idea that the actions of the parents are not going to be cast upon the children again mm -hmm. uh, in a negative sense and uh, you know should have looked that one up i guess but the <laughs> the bigger point there is that inherited guilt concept idea that um there is a sense that there's going to be a a ceasing of passing down uh the the consequences of the parents upon the children yeah. but that's also prophetic and it could be this is after you know uh, the yeah. new covenant era or whatever but but yes regardless of of how you view inherited guilt, we, we still need to see the work of Christ applied to every human being. And, uh, and God has the freedom to, to act as he would like to act. But, you know, the reason we need an age of accountability is really to try to understand how um, to take care of these that the Bible doesn't really clearly go out of its way and explain, yeah. well, this is what happens. So let me, let me fire these off because before I kind of, I've got, I still got one, one verse, I think kind of that still has helped me the most, but I want to fire these ones off. Um, Grudem brings these up in his text okay. about, um, he uses some New Testament examples. I want to see what you think. Uh, he brings up that, uh, he says, we, we know that it's possible for God to bring rep, regeneration, that is new spiritual life to an infant, even before he or she is born. This was true in, the, in John the Baptist. Uh, he says, uh, and he quotes, uh, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And then Grudem writes, we might say that John the Baptist was born again, in quotes, before he was born. Similar, he uses in Psalm 22, David says, since my mother bore me, you have been my God. He says, clearly, there, it's clear, therefore, that God is able to save infants in an unusual way, apart from their hearing and understanding of the gospel, by bringing regeneration to them very early, sometimes even before birth. Now, this is gets into the, the idea. This, of course, gets into election, um, right. regeneration, all of that kind of stuff. But uh, what do you think about that reference to John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit even at a young birth? Yeah, and, and this, this always really doesn't sit well with me because um, then I do have a question of, okay, could John have lost his salvation? You know, um, it, 
the fact that being filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're looking at an Old Testament prophetic picture, yeah. is not the same regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we see post the work of Christ. Uh, and so, so I would be very cautious to say, hey, this is how um, it's worked in this instance. Uh, so, you know, we have Old Testament where the Holy Spirit comes down on Saul and he prophesies and it's like out of his control. Yeah, we do see an outpouring of the spirit in those ways and just being filled with the spirit in that context to me doesn't necessarily mean he's being re regenerated and his sins are washed away. That's not like you would say that that's not like the acts understanding of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that this is a in the same the judges, the spirit came heavily upon him and 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 then he's gone after a while. You know, he does the work that he's called him to do. Right. And, and, and that's so we, we get a little dangerously close in my mind back to some of the Catholic uh, views of immaculate conceptions and um, Mary, you know, Mary is born without sin in the uh, Catholic model. You know, so uh, the Holy Spirit essentially uh, was able to overshadow her. And because her uh, her own birth was immaculately conceived, she is a sinless vessel in which the Holy Spirit can conceive. Christ. And so we, we keep backing this up and creating this uh, undoing of original sin, you know, which of course, if you have a very strong sense of inherited guilt that comes through, then how is Christ immune from that inherited guilt unless Mary is pure as well as the Holy Spirit to create. Yeah. And so those are the issues that I have that, that start coming up when we do too much with that. But I do think it does say that God is able to bless and, and do one wonderful things even before we're able to acknowledge what God's doing. And, and so I think that's positive. And I, I think Grudem, he, in, in fairness to Grudem, he just says, he does say this. He says um, that this is, what does he say? Um, this is not the usual way for God to save people. That we need to affirm that, that this is not the normal way. And he goes in and talks about how it really is from here in the gospel. Uh, and so, but I would agree with you. I think that verse is probably more akin to an Old Testament understanding of being filled for the task that he's been given to do. Um, you know, uh, well, not, it, yeah. yeah the, the biblical grounds for Mary being sinless is uh, the angel Gabriel saying, Hail Mary, you know, full of grace, which is in the, the prayer to Mary. Uh, and you're like, well, full of grace doesn't mean that you are purely sinless, immaculately conceived. You know, we, we build all yeah. this other stuff. And so I get afraid that that can happen in a similar way, you know, by, by looking at that. But I do think it's a, it's a cool verse. Uh, that even fallen as he was in the womb of his mother, the Holy Spirit was going to fill him, you know? So yeah. um, th that shows me, again, God has extraordinary measures that are outside of what we know, which is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, you know, and that that's the, <laughs> that's the mechanism to uh, initiate faith and move us to repentance and salvation. So, so well, and, and that's where I like what Grudem says here, which he says, so how many infants does God save in this way? Talking, because he believes that's a passage talking about the salvation of John the Baptist. He says, scripture doesn't tell us, so we simply cannot know. Where scripture is silent, it is unwise for us to make definitive pronouncements. And then after he finishes this all up, at the very end, he talks about if they're saved, it'll be on the base of Christ's redeeming work and their regeneration, like that of John the Baptist before he was born, uh, and it'll be by God's mercy and grace. Salvation is always because of his mercy and not our merits. Scripture does not allow us to say more than that. And I think that's where he goes very cautious here. He and is. He, I, I think he's too loose on saying that this is the salvation moment of John the Baptist. But uh, other than that, I think he's, he's cautious because, 
again, do you think Saul's in heaven or hell? You know, that's a fun question. Uh, he, received, he, <laughs> he received the spirit of God, right? And then he receives a tormenting spirit uh, later on. So, so I, I would be very cautious to say that John the Baptist got saved in Elizabeth's womb. But, um, yeah. that's, uh, but, but I, do, I think I would agree with everything else he says. I just think it's, it's an unusual way we can affirm that God does things like you had already said in the womb and can. Not that it's, it's the definitive statement that he does, but he can. So I think but right now we're putting the pieces together, right? So we know Christ loves children. We know that uh, God has been gracious to save children of family members, uh, you know, when, when, the, when those family members have been faithful, right? We know that he can and, and has done miraculous things with children prior to even being born. So those are three big pieces to really say, okay, there, there's something to go on here for sure. Um, so I got one more that right. I want to throw at you. And this is something that I think I want to get your perspective on just hear how you, how you hear it. Um, because I think there's, I think Moses is giving us um, without saying it explicitly, I think Moses is declaring that there's an age of accountability. So here's, here's this is just a, this is a Bennettism here. So um, in Deuteronomy 1, he says this in verse 37. Uh, now the Lord was angry with me because of you and said, you will not enter uh, there either. Joshua, son of Nun, who attends you, will enter. Encourage him, for he will enable Israel to inherit it. Your children who you said would be plunder, your sons who, do, who don't yet know good from evil will enter there. I will give them the land, they will take possession of it, but you are to turn back and head for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Um, what do you think, what do you make of that verse right there, specifically in 39? Because I think he's doing something explicit there, or I mean implicit. I think he's implying something about children um, in, that, in that passage uh, about their status um, or, you know, before the Lord. Yeah, I guess the question is why mention it if it's meaningless? Why, why say you're little ones who have no knowledge of good or evil? Yeah. If, it, if it's meaningless, I think without bouncing around too much, it reminds me of Isaiah, the virgin birth prophecy, where it says before the, the child is old enough to know right from wrong, uh, yeah. the land of the two kings you, you dread will, will be forsaken. The, the, clearly, God recognizes that there is a, a time before children know right from wrong. Um, and in the case of Moses, his sin is not passed on. The punishment of his sin is not passed on to his kids. Yeah. So, so I think we, we're seeing like a microcosm of how God could act uh, towards the little ones that we are talking about. So uh, I, I, I'll say this. So there's a criticism. Okay, I remember talking to Paul Wegner about this. So Paul is a, um, he's a Old Testament professor at Gateway Seminary. Brilliant guy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it was in our, my Isaiah class that this came up, that we were talking about this. Um, because I think probably launched out of the idea that when you're talking about um, in chapter seven, he said, by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating curds and honey, right? And then he goes before he knows to choose, reject what is bad and choose what is good. The land of the two kings you'll dread will be abandoned. So I think I, might, I think in a discussion class, I made that leap. But what criticism he brought up to this is, okay, but how old was everybody? Because remember, uh, at that time, it was everybody 20 and under made it in. 
you know, so uh, they're, you know, everybody, so you've got a huge range, age range there. Um, I don't necessarily think, though, that he's talking about everybody in that category. I think they're fearing because he says right there in 39, your children. Later on, he'll say your sons, but I think he's talking about children in mind here. They're looking at their little ones um, that are there and they're freaking out. And he says that we know they're going to be plunder. Uh, and so I, I don't necessarily think that this passage is saying that they believe that their 18, 19 year old, you know, almost a fighting age doesn't know right from wrong. Um, I, and I think, I think even using the chapter seven of Isaiah kind of helps clarify. We're talking about young here, right? Right. right. Um, so I think that's an interesting piece to say. Now, the reason I think it's an interesting piece as well is because I do think that you go and um, there, you make that leap to Genesis chapter two, right? You, you make the, the leap to, the, the, um, to Genesis and you, you find that they're placed in the garden um, technically um, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're in there and you find out, right, what are they to eat from in chapter two? Uh, you're eat, free to eat from any tree of the garden. You must not eat from the tri tree of knowledge of good and evil for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's verse 17 of chapter two. So I've kind of always taken Deuteronomy uh, one uh, and looked at what he is implying in this passage as saying that there seems to be a time that children's eyes are not open to right and wrong, that there's almost a kind of pre, I know this could sound weird, right? But we're, we're just talking here, almost that there's some sort of a pre-fall kind of a state where they're of accountability in a sense that they, they have not yet gone out and taken and understand what they have done is break, you know, break the commandments of the Lord. They haven't done that willingly. Now, I don't know when that is. I don't know. I mean, I look at, I look at kids, I look at my own kids and I think, man, I mean, even now I, I would say, I think they're very capable of understanding uh, deceit and, and, and those things. I love my kids. I'm not here with Chris, but you know what I mean? Like there, yes. I, I think it, that age, I think that, I don't know when that is. I don't think that's a real, I don't think there's an age line somewhere, but I do think there is some point when, when you finally do that, you have, you have done something where now the scales are off and I understand what I'm doing is right and wrong. Uh, and so they're looking at their little ones saying they don't, they don't even know. They, they, they can't even make that decision. They haven't taken from right. that. That's kind of what I've, I've always assumed. Um, and, you know, so there you go. I think from the perspective of the human perspective, which is not in line always with the divine, is that we, we do look at children and say, oh, they're so innocent. And, and I've never looked at a parent of a two-month-old that says, man, it just, isn't it wonderful? They're so precious, so innocent. And then immediately use that as an opportunity to give a discourse on uh, total depravity, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, your child is horribly rotten to the core. No, um, it's more of a human understanding of they, they're not corrupted yet. And even when you, you kind of like giggle about how your three-year-old will try to pull a fast one on you uh, because they're being so sneaky, right? Uh, they're, <laughs> they're trying to steal the cookie on the table and they, they think you can't see them, you know, because you did this, you know, 
So yeah. it, it's funny because they, it doesn't mean that they don't sin or they don't disobey, even willingly disobey. It's that they don't understand the gravity of it. They don't really get it. And uh, so I do think that's interesting, bringing it back to the garden. You know, um, obviously there was law. They knew that they shouldn't do that, but they didn't know. They didn't fully grasp what they the consequences were. They until they took, that they understood. And then their now eyes, eyes are opened, right? All of a sudden they recognized things they hadn't recognized. I mean, and that's, and that's what it says. The moment she ate it, they said, the verse 7 of chapter 3, the eyes of both are open. They knew they were naked. And so I think there's that piece of at some point, at some point in a life of a child, I believe they, they, that line has been crossed and they have now, that sin nature is there. It is, it is crouching at their door as, he, as God tells uh, uh, Cain in chapter four. And he says, you know, that, uh, you know, that sin is at your door and it's desire, it's crouching at your door, it's desirous for you. It's there, it's waiting, it's inside. Um, and, uh, at some point that mark, that line is crossed and they, they have moved out of, they have now their eyes are open and they truly understand. I think that age, now they are completely accountable to the Lord on that. Well, uh, and that's, and they, and they can experience the conviction, you know, that's, I, I, at four years old, I wanted to be baptized and I wanted to do all these great things, but I didn't have an, a conviction of sin in my life. The spirit hadn't convicted me of that. I just didn't want to go to hell because that sounded terrible, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which I think is a righteous desire to not want to go to hell. But, but when you cross that threshold, the Holy Spirit is able to do its work in convicting you of sin. And it's at that moment, that conviction allows you to recognize the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ and your need for Christ. And I think yeah. that's the key. And I, that, you do bring up a good point. I think both of us kind of take it for granted that there's not an age like, okay, you're seven, you're 13, you're 18, you know, uh, the culture doesn't set the age. Uh, most cultures will be gracious on the age, like 20 years of age or younger, 18, you're a minor until you're 18 in America. Um, we we want to make sure that everybody has sufficient time to cross that threshold in our legal system. But God is the only one that can look at the heart and say, you, you passed that threshold. And yeah. therefore, uh, your, your sin is going to be... Uh, counted against you unless you now know truly right from wrong good from evil you know not just you know i i'm i'm eating a cookie you know that kind of a thing but but the, at the same time when i see my sin in my children at a young age but i know like i don't i know that there's probably no real connection that i've i've sinned and i'm guilty i still do i think that brings me back to still the kind of that reform perspective of I, I still see the inherited sin, inherited guilt. It's all there. Um, but I do think that biblically you can say, I think I'm, I'm okay with God intervening for those who die prior to that age of accountability and saving them. Because I do think he does, he seems to make it clear that there is some sort of age before you understand good from evil. Prior to that, I don't think you're expelled from the garden, so to speak, you know? Right. Um, and so, so that's kind of where I list. I know it's not tight and, and, and tight and nice and neat, but I think at the end, I find myself saying like Wayne Groom, like I just, I kind of pause after that. It's not a hundred percent, but I feel like that's, it, it's, it's good enough for me at least in terms of my viewpoint here. And I think that that's anytime we come to a theological 
endpoint of this is what we hope for, but not necessarily what we fully know. Uh, it's not fully revealed to us. We, we, we rest on the goodness of God, the justice of God, that, that, that he's going to do this thing uh, the best, most perfect way possible, because that's who he is. And so, uh, so we, we don't have to despair over any of this. We, we trust in him. We, we go forward. But I do think there's enough um, clues that we have in scripture to say there is an age of accountability and then how God will enact the work of Christ for those that have not crossed that threshold uh, is, is up to him. But what should we do? We need to preach the gospel. <laughs> we need to be people that are continually telling people the gospel message because the ordinary means of salvation is repent and believe. So and I think that means too, is you, you need to be discipling your kids yes. best as you can and understand that, um, you know, even, even as they don't understand, even though you think they may not get it yet, I'm going to do my best to set my kids up and to point them towards, because I, I don't also just want to rest on, Hey, if God has saved me, maybe he'll be gracious. I want to claim that and hope that, but I'm also going to pray for and disciple my kids and give them every opportunity I can, kind of a Deuteronomy 6 approach, to make sure that they have had every opportunity to make that decision for themselves and let it not be said, you know, that, you know, I was just coasting, hoping that that was enough from on my parents' merit or whatnot, you know. Right. Uh, granted, they could never do that, but I think that should make you aware of your children's sin. I think this discussion should say, my kids are sinners. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I love you guys, but you are. You're a bunch of sinners, um, and, and you need Jesus. And, and right. you should be praying that God would save them, not just hoping that he might cover over, but that, you know, you don't, you, you don't want them to reach that. You, you, I mean, you don't want them to pass before age of accountability. So you want them, God, to save them and call them out. And, and, uh, but you recognize that even at a young age, that sin is there, ready, ready to come out. And there at some point they'll make that decision. Their eyes will be open. And you, you just got to hope that the Holy spirit will grab a hold and draw them and pray for that. Amen. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, that's about all I want to say on that. Anything else you want to bring up? No, I think again, just we, we are living day to day in the grace of God. And that, that's ultimately where this discussion brings us back to. Are you trusting in God's grace and uh, in being obedient the best you understand for the sake of your kids, for the sake of the lost? Uh, so you ready to close this out with that great blessing? Let's do it, man. All, All right. right. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. All right. Thanks for watching OTXNT. We'll see you next week with another one. I'm out.